One topic continues to dominate everything in the world today. That's the coronavirus pandemic. And the arts community continues to feel the physical, economic, and emotional pain of a crisis that's dominated our lives for months now. This week, we give you updates on the stories that matter, including museum news, a peculiar attempt by one attorney to go after the Whitney Museum's nonprofit status. You're going to have to hear this one. And the mixed news regarding how U.S. cities are coping with arts funding. This and much, much more. I want to give you a little update. I had promised our report about artists in Queens last week. But we've had a couple of delays, so expect that story very soon. Thanks for your patience. I'm Harag Bartanyan, the editor-in-chief and co-founder of Hyperallergic. And I'm joined by our news team, led by Hyperallergic's news editor, Jasmine Weber, who will get us up to speed on the latest coronavirus-related art community news. But no one told me why I should pay the cost. Since the last time we've spoken here at Hyperallergic, we've covered a lot of stories about acts of solidarity across the art world. Artists and organizations lending a helping hand to people who are struggling because of the pandemic. A few of those examples that we've seen are artists participating and organizing as part of the cancel rent movement. Top scholars boycotting universities that aren't protecting their graduate workers and other non-tenured faculty. And we've also seen a number of online readers showing support for a journalist who was arrested for drawing on a construction wall with chalk. She wrote, Trump equals plague, and she was flanked by a number of NYPD officers and held for almost five hours because of this washable drawing. I want to ask you about that, if that's all right, because, you know, it's such an, I mean, I don't even know what to describe this story as. For the NYPD to be concentrating on someone writing on a wall in chalk. Now, do we have a sense of if this is something they've been doing in that neighborhood quite a bit? I mean, we've reported in the past on how really draconian some of these graffiti laws are um, in regards to artists. And years ago, we talked about Julie Torres, who was an artist painting, watercolor painting on a wall, who was arrested by undercovers, the Vandal Squad, for exactly this kind of thing, you know, and thankfully that turned out well. But can you give us some insight into this story? Yeah, so... The woman, Jill Nelson, gave Hakeem Bashara, one of our staff reporters, a really strong quote that I think sums up the experience. She said, I frankly feel as an African-American woman and a person of color that it's open season on us in every way, from the disproportionate number of people who are dying of COVID-19, people with the worst health care, people who are doing the most vulnerable jobs, to young people beaten down for allegedly not social distancing. And I think that her foregrounding her experience as a Black woman and the way that she was mishandled and really treated roughly and rudely by the NYPD over this washable drawing without being given a moment to explain herself and also being denied the opportunity to tell her husband what precinct she was being held at. I think it really sums up the way that NYPD is over-policing these predominantly African-American neighborhoods predominantly Latinx neighborhoods. She was on 162nd Street and Broadway when this happened. And I would actually invite Hakeem, if you want to elaborate a bit about the story you spoke with Jill Nelson for this coverage, and you might be able to provide some more insight. Yes, I had a very emotional conversation with Jill about this. 
just the fact that they came out of nowhere. Two police cars were four cops, and they, uh, they were aggressive towards her. They cuffed her, they searched her, they threatened her, they kept her in a jail cell for five hours. They didn't let her talk to her husband, as you said. They uh, cut the conversation after like seven seconds. Before that, they told her she has a minute to talk to him. And I've been amazed of how uh, widely shared the story was on social media. People are shocked about this. But I have a happy update about the story, by the way. Nelson sent me an email yesterday with an image from that same spot on Broadway and uh, 162nd Street in Manhattan, where she originally scribbled that uh, criminal graffiti. Somebody has returned to that same spot, reinstated that graffiti in chalk, and also added, you know, they wrote Trump equals plague and added silence equals death, vote, exclamation mark. Wow. That's, I mean, it's incredible because, of course, they're referencing the last major pandemic New York faced, which was the AIDS crisis. And silence equals death was one of the, of course, well-known slogans from that period among activists. Exactly. Now, Jill has demanded an official apology from NYPD, uh, plus a chance to meet with the commanding officer that was responsible for this whole affair. And these requests have not yet been answered. What an incredible story. I mean, I, I just want to, for those who may not know, um, there was a report today in the New York Times that I just want to sort of cite talking about the highest death rates from the pandemic in New York. And it did reveal the fact that the majority, that something like nine out of 10 of the hardest hit neighborhoods were communities of color, just to sort of underscore the writer's um, point. Now, Jasmine, is there any, any other stories you've had your eye on in the last couple of weeks? Yeah, so I'd actually invite Valentina Delicia, another one of our staff reporters, to talk about Alina Tensor and Gabo Kamnitzer, who took matters into their own hands when their Brooklyn landlords were not being flexible with certain tenants who were not able to pay their rent due to the pandemic. Thank you, Jasmine. Yeah, so uh, many people might not know this. So for some background on May 1st or May Day, which as we know is also International Workers Day, there was a massive rent strike in New York, and not just in New York, actually across the nation. In New York, it was largely organized by advocacy groups like Housing Justice for All and Right to Counsel. People simply can't pay the rent. And so I focused on one story of two artists in a Bushwick building. Their names, like Jasmine said, Alina Tenser and Gabo Kamnitzer. These two artists organized a really successful rent strike in their building. So this building, it's actually, it's a new development that was finished last year, managed by Bushwick Realty Holdings. And it actually has some affordable housing units, which means that the demographics of its tenants is really diverse. So you have middle and upper middle class people, but then you have people who landed there through the affordable housing lottery. So you have lower middle class, worker class tenants living there. So Alina and Gabo, who, by the way, are not just artists, but they're also university workers, they teach at universities, they heard of tenants who couldn't pay their rent, and they organized a tenants association with more than 60 members, which is a lot in a 177-unit building, and they asked their landlord for rent reductions. That's the first step they took. Their landlord refused, and so they organized a rent strike. And here's what I think is so interesting about this particular story and the rent strike, the cancel rent movement in general. Many of the tenants in Alina and Gabo's building, they were able to pay their rent. They were fortunate enough to have the money. 
but they were striking in solidarity with people who couldn't pay. And I interviewed, um, I specifically spoke to some of the tenants who couldn't pay their rent. And, you know, one of them said, look, I have to choose between feeding my child and paying my rent. Of course, I'm going to choose feeding my child. But what we're really seeing is, and Jasmine, you brought this up in your introduction, and I think it's so important, a movement towards solidarity. People who are fortunate enough standing up for those who aren't. And I think that's a really wonderful thing. Such an important story. Thank you so much, uh, Valentina. So you've also been working on some other stories. I wonder if you can get us up to speed at what's happening at the American Museum of Natural History, since that's been a story we've been reporting on for a while. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's a good segue into just speaking about workers. So the American Museum of Natural History is one of the latest museums to implement basically institution-wide layoffs and furloughs and to announce a budget deficit projection, which we've been hearing from many museums over the past few months. So the museum actually expects that there will be a budget shortfall between 80 and $120 million. Um, That's including the current and the coming fiscal year. And it's cut 200 full-time employees. So it's done this via a combination of layoffs and what they say are voluntary retirements. And it's also then furloughed another 250 workers. So just to give you a picture, that's nearly half of the museum staff of 1,100 workers that's being affected by uh, these measures. And I think, Frog, this is a good time to mention that what we're really looking at, I think, here at Hyperallergic, I've been really focused on, you know, how institutions report and speak about layoffs and furloughs. Because, you know, institutions, headlines reading, massive layoffs at such and such institution, that can be a PR crisis for a museum. So how are institutions skirting that language or working with language to avoid that kind of negative publicity? In the case of the American Museum of Natural History, certainly we've heard about the furloughs and the layoffs, but, you know, we've also heard from some workers that there are pay cuts in their departments, which hasn't necessarily been uh, reported as widely. So I think it's a really important time to look at how institutions speak about their workers and speak about the measures that they're taking. Such a great point. And I wonder, Valentina, if you, as well as Jasmine and Hakeem, since all of you guys have been watching this very closely, has there been anything that you've seen that has sort of raised eyebrows? I know in the office yesterday, we were even talking about the fact that at the Museum of Modern Art, a lot of the educators were actually hired by a third party organization as contractors. And, and I'm just wondering, because I feel like this is revealing a lot of how these institutions actually function and work and organize themselves in a way that, frankly, I wasn't aware of, and I have a feeling others weren't as well. Yeah, I'm so glad you're bringing that up, Prague. So a couple of weeks ago, Bloomberg reported that MoMA cut 17% of its staff and also sliced its budget by $45 million. But the museum is also saying, We've cut our staff through general attrition and through voluntary retirements, but we haven't laid anybody off. And of course, hearing that there have been 17% cuts in staff without laying anybody off raises eyebrows, but may very well be possible. But I think the point is what workers are considered staff, right? Because what we've heard from some education workers is, well, we were hired by a temp agency. And so we don't necessarily fall under the museum's staff category. And so When those contracts were terminated, which we reported on when it happened now over a month ago, 
MoMA wasn't referring to those workers as, as staff. So I think that we need to be very careful about these categories, these categories of workers, and making sure that we speak about them in an equitable way. Yeah, so part of what I've been wondering about this, and Jasmine, I don't know if you have any insight into this matter, but it's really interesting how the Museum of Modern Art and other institutions have started sort of reveal the fact that these educators and other positions are not directly hired by the institution, but are often outsourced to other third-party organizations that provide them those services. And I remember years ago discovering the Guggenheim in regards to their security staff often did the same thing. So they could say, for instance, no, we're paying these security guards X amount of money, but they're actually paying a third party service and they might be paying those guards a lot less. Now, I'm wondering whether who gets served when we start talking about these sort of little details, like saying, oh, no, this person's a contractor working in a third party. And I'm just wondering whether we're feeding into this kind of corporate language around layoffs and therefore sort of, you know, helping institutions shirk some of the responsibility of taking care of their staff. So I wonder, Jasmine, if you'd want to wade in. And then uh, I'd love to hear Valentina and Hakeem's take as well. I think from what we've covered so far, a lot of these institutions who have been reporting layoffs and furloughs are also padding those numbers quite a bit. I think that there are a lot of loopholes in terms of freelance workers who are not included in those numbers. It's something that we've been thinking about, that Valentina and Hakeem have both been researching. I think that it definitely is a manipulation of corporate language to hide some of the facts about the museum working environment. And I think that it's something that we're hoping to make our readers aware of in the near future. Great point. Valentina, Hakeem, any uh, thoughts? Yeah, I think it's a really good point. I mean, workers are workers, right? And I think by using language that creates a hierarchy of work, what you're really doing is you're devaluing people's contributions to a museum, to society. We need to be careful. I mean, these workers, these education workers at MoMA, they've been staffing pivotal centers of the museum. One worker I spoke to told me that actually the full-time staffed education workers, like managers and associates, they develop the programs, but these contracted workers carry out the programs. So they're playing a really fundamental role in the museum. And some of them they work near full-time hours, especially when they need to cover somebody else who couldn't show up. I mean, they're working many, many hours a week, sometimes nearly, you know, 35 or 40 hours a week in some cases. So, you know, like you said, Harag, this corporate language, it's kind of a, it's a pitfall. I think it's a pitfall for journalists and it's a pitfall for the workers themselves. I would add that we are all brainwashed by neoliberalism and neoliberal thought that, you know, the almost immediate reaction after hearing that, that they were hired by a third party is that, Oh, yeah, that makes sense. You know, they can't be unionized. But when you look at uh, the situation these days, unionized workers are also not exempt from those layoffs and furloughs. So nobody is safe. And it's important these days to highlight the solidarity between all kinds of workers in museums. Absolutely. Good points. So now, Jasmine, I want to ask you about what's going on in Philadelphia. I mean, the news coming out of Pennsylvania and Philadelphia specifically has been pretty shocking for many of us. Do you mind sort of summarizing some of the issues they're facing? So what we've seen in Philadelphia that Hakeem reported on were a number of tips and stories coming in about really struggling organizations in the city. 
statewide, a number of cultural grants that had been awarded already were actually taken away. A statewide freeze in the budget took out $1.7 million in grants to over 80 organizations. This was first reported by the Philadelphia Inquirer, which found that arts organizations were severely impacted by this. And then later on, we see Mayor Jim Kenney in the city at the beginning of this month, introduced a revision to the budget that completely eliminated all $4.4 million that is annually allocated to the arts. This was really hard on local organizations, especially including the African American Museum in Philadelphia. And Hakeem, since you reported on this and spoke with them, if you could talk a little bit about why and how this elimination of the budget is especially affecting this museum and others like it. Yeah. I have to say first that watching Kenny's address was uh, streamed on YouTube. It's a very somber and apologetic address. He said that he doesn't want this for his city, but he has to because the city cannot. It's illegal for the city to carry a deficit, unlike the federal government. And yet it's quite astonishing. We're talking about the reduction of an arts budget of about $4.4 million last year down to zero an absolute zero. And I spoke with uh, Patricia Wilson-Aiden, the president and CEO of the African American Museum in Philadelphia. She told me that her museum receives about $230,000 in funds every year from the city, which uh, amount to 18% of the museum's administrative budget. Now, administrative budget as opposed to the total operating budget is the budget allocated for salaries, visitor services expenses, and vital costs of a museum. So the people who are going to suffer from this are workers because the museum will have problem paying their salaries. But Patricia assured me that the museum is not in danger in closing. They will continue their programming. Their total operating budget, by the way, is about $2.8 million. The problem is that the rest of the budget, other than that administrative budget, It's by corporate donors and individual donors. And those kinds of donations tend to be restricted to programming, meaning that the museum is not allowed to use them for, you know, running uh, costs and paying salaries. It's worth mentioning also that the African American Museum, which was established in 1976, it was the first museum that was fully funded and built by the city. Patricia also said that this will have an effect on the African-American community in the city because, in her words, the black and brown communities have always looked to the arts and culture to uplift during times of hardship. And she believes that arts and culture are essential to the recovery of the city. We also spoke with Christina Vassallo, who is the executive director of the Fabric Worship and Museum in the city. The Fabric Workshop only receives $10,000 a year from the city and $20,000 a year from the state. It's not as uh, a big uh, as a blow as the African uh, American Museum is going to suffer, but still for a mid-sized organization, it's quite a lot of money. Vassala told me that she's more concerned about the symbolic effect of this decision, that it sends a message that the arts are not necessary for the recovery of the city from the pandemic. She also said that's an important detail, that the Arts and Culture Office is responsible for many free arts events that are offered to the public. And when those budgets are gone, 
people will have less uh, cultural opportunities in the city in a time where you know, unemployment rates are rising and people are suffering from really economic hardship. Such a good point, Hakeem. Thank you for your reporting on this. But Jasmine, you also had some good news uh, from another U.S. city. Yeah, so a more positive initiative that we've been reporting on. On Monday, May 18th, one of our contributors, Sarah Rose Sharp, wrote about an initiative in Los Angeles. There's an initiative in the city where development projects that are valued at $500,000 or more pay a fee that goes directly to fund arts in that district. It's called the Private Arts Development Fee Program. And now with COVID-19 happening and the pandemic having shut down a number of events and postponing different things, that budget will now be reutilized as emergency grants for artists, art organizations, and performance spaces who have been affected by the pandemic. It passed unanimously in the LA City Council twice during two motions. And I think that for a number of small organizations in the city and for a number of independent organizations in the city, this must have been like breathing a sigh of relief to hear that the city will be doing what they can to support these struggling creatives. That's really great to hear. I'm so happy that some cities are definitely taking the initiative to incorporate arts into their funding. So, Valentina, I want to move to you because you've also been reporting on one really interesting thing, I guess, that happened uh, a little while ago, which was the Freeze Art Fair in New York and their decision to go completely online. And not only that, something happened that I think all of us raised our eyebrows a little bit, which was the fact that for the first time ever, there was price transparency in the portal. So why? What did you find? Yeah, so I actually interviewed Loring Randolph, who is the director of Freeze New York. And I think it's worth mentioning that this isn't the only fair to go virtual or the first fair to go virtual. Art Basel Hong Kong did their viewing rooms online this year, and they were also encouraging, um, quote unquote, exhibitors to use price transparency, that is to post the prices online. These fairs are totally public. So Unlike a fair where, you know, you have to pay a fee to get in, like, for example, Freeze's admission, regular admission was between $40 and $50, which is pretty hefty. These fairs, once the VIP preview days are over, of course, anybody can log on and look at them, which means that anybody can also look at these prices. And that, you know, in an industry known for its opacity and known for really holding on to their intel and holding on to their artist information and to pricing information, this feels pretty progressive. So what Loring explained during our interview is that without the face-to-face, in-person interaction of a physical fair, posting prices on an online fair is like, she described it as one less barrier to entry for communication. So if the price isn't there, an interested collector might say, well, I don't know if that's affordable for me. By the time the gallery gets back saying, well, it's actually this price and not that price, they might have been interested in something else, or they simply feel you know, not ashamed, but disappointed, perhaps, that they weren't able to afford an artwork that they didn't know. Whereas if they post the price, that collector immediately knows this is or isn't for me. Again, it's one less barrier to entry. So in our conversation, I asked her if they plan on continuing to encourage exhibitors to be transparent about pricing and physical fairs. And she said, you know, Probably not. They don't want to mess around with how galleries want to set up their booth. Often posting prices means adding labels. Some artists wouldn't want that. But 
basically what she's saying is, you know, the galleries are leading this conversation. As much as Freeze encouraged people to do it, I was actually really surprised to hear that she didn't get any pushbacks from galleries. So galleries, it was optional to post prices or not, but for most primary market works, and those are works coming directly from the artist studio, prices were listed. And then for secondary market works, which are works on resale, prices may not have always been listed. And that's just because of fundamental separation between the primary and secondary markets. Collectors that are reselling their works may not want people to know why or for how much money they're reselling them. And of course, that's that's something about market transparency that an initiative like this one can't really fix or can't really improve. But I do think that the move to make primary market works transparent in terms of pricing is, is a pretty big thing. And I do think it's going to change the way that people collect art or the way that galleries share information. That's such a good point. I think it's a little funny, though, they talk about the artist not wanting to share prices, where in reality, it might very well be the gallery or other people. But I also think it's quite funny. It's like artists sell to luxury market, don't want to reveal their luxury prices. So I'm just going to make that little comment and move on. (laughs) (laughs) I think well said, Rob. Well, Hakeem, I want to invite you to talk about two major stories you'd been working on. And of course, they seem to be related to the fact that last Friday was Nakba Day. And for those who don't know, that is the international day where people commemorate the expulsion of Palestinians from their home in 1948, when the state of Israel was officially created. So, Hakeem, can you give us a little idea of what these complaints and these different issues are and why you think they might be coming up now? Yes, the first story is an unusual one for sure. A New York attorney named Neil Sheriff filed a complaint to the IRS against the Whitney Museum asking to revoke the nonprofit tax-exempt status of the museum because he claims the museum's leadership has orchestrated and acquiesced in a concerted smear campaign against its former vice chairman, Warren Candors. If you remember... Candace resigned as vice chairman of the Whitney last summer after months of demonstrations by a coalition of grassroots organizations that was led by the activist group Decolonize This Place. This whole storm started with actually Jasmine's report in November of uh, 2018 about the use of tear gas produced by Candace's company, Safariland Group, against asylum seekers at the U.S.-Mexico border. Shares letter, which we have obtained, claims to be on behalf of contributors and, that's a quote, contributors and former officials of the Whitney Museum of American Art. But speaking to representatives on behalf of Candace, Candace says he has no knowledge of this letter. What a curious story. Hakeem, what do we know about this lawyer and what his connection to this issue might be? Cher was the former executive director of the American Israel Public Affairs Committee, also known as APAC. And he was also uh, the head of the Office of Special Investigations, which is the Justice Department's Nazi prosecution unit. Looking into his record, we also found that Cher was disbarred from uh, the District of Columbia in 2003 after he admitted to misappropriating funds from that Nazi hunting commission. So he comes with a complicated record. One more uh, thing in Shira's letter is that he specifically targets Amin Hussein, who is an organizer with Decolonize This Place. His complaint also goes to the extent of attaching as an appendix a translated transcription of a talk that Hussein gave in Ramallah last summer. 
That's really unbelievable. And you want to also mention this isn't the first time the press or our different individuals have actually specifically targeted Amin Hussein as a, as the focus of their criticism. Do you want to talk a little bit about some of the other things that have happened here in New York? In April, we published a story following an open letter published by the colonizers' place on uh, Verso's uh, blog. And there seems to be a concerted campaign against Amin Hussein in the right-wing media, talking about reports in the New York Post, Fox News, The Daily Caller, and the Jerusalem Post, all known to be right-wing publications. And they all focus on Hussein as the ringleader and the main agitator, that's a quote, in those protests. It was sparked by the DTP, which is the Congress's place's role in the the protests against Candace and the Whitney Museum, but also because of their activity against the MTA and the over-policing of New York subways, and where they organized those large demonstrations across the city. As a result of that, of those reports, which seems to be coordinated, if you look at the text of these reports, it's quite similar. It's almost like a script that's being shared between those publications. We reported on death threats that Hussein received, and um, unpersonal threats to his career, his work as a teacher in New York City. So there's definitely a campaign against him. That's just an objective reality. Asher's letter also attacks forensic architecture, which did participate in the Whitney Biennial 2019, and had uh, a video titled uh, Triple Chaser Grenades, which featured an investigation into the use of tear gas and bullets manufactured by the companies owned by Candace. As you remember, when uh, the uh, forensic architecture also withdrew from the exhibition after they said they found a direct link between bullets produced by a subsidiary of Safariland Group, the company owned by Candace, and violence against Palestinians in Gaza. So this whole issue tends to always come back to the issue of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, which is very unusual. Eyal Weizmann, the director of the group Forensic Architecture, told us in an interview that this is an escalation against artists and activists in the city who are engaged in social critique. I mean, when you have elements going after a major cultural institution like the Whitney, this marks an escalation in the fight, according to Eyal Weizmann, in the fight against the colonizers' place and specifically targeting Amin Hussein. I think it's really concerning. I think we've been seeing this type of escalation, particularly around decolonize and Amin Hussein specifically. And it's so interesting how he's often centered out, which, as we can imagine, plays into various media narratives of violence and Palestinians and and it's it's really really unfortunate. But part of me wonders whether this is going to this is actually going to do the opposite of what this lawyer and other people may want it to do, because I think it sort of uh, highlights the fact that by attacking a beloved arts institution like the Whitney Museum, people are going to wonder like are the people involved in this really interested in dialogue, or if they're interested in controlling the narrative. Yeah, I mean uh, it might be counterproductive. The Whitney would not respond to this story when we reached out. And I, I can imagine some trustees being against this. Neil Sherrod, the lawyer who sent the complaint, would not talk to us after repeated requests, but he did talk to the Financial Times 
And he said that he sent another letter to trustees at the Whitney voicing his concerns. And we should mention that Financial Times was also the publication that seemed to give an interview to Warren Kanders last year in the midst of a lot of the controversies. So it's interesting that the Financial Times is becoming the go-to paper for, you know, the anti-BDS people or align themselves with the anti-BDS stances. There's still some strange unknown parts of the story, but we will keep following. Almost at the same time, more than 330 very prominent artists, filmmakers, musicians signed a letter calling on an arms embargo against Israel and to lift Israel's 13-year siege on Gaza. The artists include Shepard Ferry, Lawrence Abu Hamdan, Anthony Gormley, and writers like Naomi Klein, musicians like Brian Eno, Peter Gabriel, really big names, Ariela Azulai, Kevin Beasley, the artist, and the, the band Massive Attack, for instance, which was big in the 90s. And we have to remember that Gaza is one of the densest cities in the world. It's the size of Detroit, and it packs 2 million people. Now, according to the latest United Nations reports, the United Nations Office for the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs, OCHA, is uh, tracking the number of confirmed COVID-19 cases in Gaza. It says that right now it stands on 20 cases. But then again, in an interview with Reuters, an official at the Gaza Health Ministry said that the city ran out of COVID-19 test kits in April and they're not testing anymore. So the number of actual cases in Gaza is estimated to be a lot higher and people are worried that there's going to be um, a human catastrophe in Gaza as a result. Well, I hope not, but that is, uh, those are really um, sobering words. And I think, unfortunately, a lot of us are anticipating this issue is certainly not over, and it's only starting to make an impact in many places around the world that have certainly a lot less resources than uh, Western Europe, the United States, China, and Japan. So we can only hope. So Jasmine, you also have been involved in some of the helping a report on some of the archival projects that are popping up. I mean, we're seeing a golden age of archives, online archives happening, you know, nowadays during this pandemic. What did you find? So with so many organizations working from home or working with increased social distancing measures where only a number of people are going into the libraries to check up on the books and only a few people are going into labs, et cetera, we've seen a lot more archival projects really being able to take shape because these archivists are shifting their priorities based on what they can do under these new measures. Another story by Sarah Rosharp is about the archive of Martha Graham's life, which has been acquired by the New York Public Library. And over the next two years will be heavily archived and then made available at the New York Public Library for the Performing Arts in Lincoln Center. There are some really interesting visual art forward objects that are going to be included, like Osamu Noguchi's set drawings for a seraphic dialogue um, that he wrote their handwritten notes included on those archival drawings. There's also a number of photographs of Graham and of her performances. And it will definitely be a rich resource for people who are interested in the performing arts, who are interested in history and who are interested in dance. We've also seen a digital archive for the 2011 Egyptian Revolution that Hakim covered. And at UCLA's Chicano Studies Research Center, over 14,000 photographs and over 100 audio recordings 
about Mexican-American religious history will be preserved. And we learned a little bit about that from an article by Valentina, who, as well as in the last podcast recording that you and I were in Prague with our Southwest editor, Ellie Duke, and Los Angeles editor, Elisa Wuk-Almino, we spoke a little bit about another initiative at the Museum of Fine Arts Houston to preserve Latino and Latinx history and cultural objects related to art history for those communities. So it's really great to see that some institutions are really taking advantage of the, the socially distant times to provide more resources for the researchers and for the hobbyists who can really benefit from them. Yeah, so great. I mean, whatever it takes, I guess, to get the, all this information online and accessible, I'll take it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but you're trying to be an art researcher, an art historian. Right. It's a, you know, I wonder how many art historians and researchers are going to come out of this, to be quite honest, because I bet you a lot of young people are spending a lot of time online uh, sifting through all these archives and hopefully it'll pique their interest and maybe they'll consider, uh, consider the field. Who knows? So I'm going to give the last word to Valentina because you have a really interesting story I think would be lovely to perhaps end this podcast with. Yeah, so on a final note, I don't know about everyone else, but I'm really missing the sounds of being in New York City. As I've mentioned in previous podcasts, I've been spending um, this time at my parents' house in Miami, which is lovely, but it's a very residential area. It can be quite quiet, and while it's relaxing, it's making me a bit restless. So one thing I've been doing when I work is kind of zoning out by listening to sounds that make me feel as though I'm in a busy, bustling city and not sitting in my bedroom. And in light of that, the New York Public Library actually has released a public playlist that you can get on their website or on Spotify. It's called Missing Sounds of New York, and it has it's exactly what it sounds like. It has all sorts of sounds, some sounds that we may have complained about while we were living in the city pre-pandemic, but that now are kind of nostalgic. So you've got your noisy neighbors, you've got a rowdy park, you've got a what they call a quote-unquote not-so-quiet library. And, you know, I have to say there's been a lot of these digital sound initiatives coming up. This one did make me feel particularly close to home, so I thought it'd be nice to share. So we'll end with a clip from a track called To See an Underground Show from NYPL's playlist, which takes us underground to the New York City subway during one of the impromptu train performances, which I think really capture one of the things that we love about the city, which is that you can find art everywhere. And it's worth mentioning that this track was co-produced with Kid the Wiz, who's a Bronx-based musician and dancer. And again, you can access the entire playlist um, on Spotify.
Okay, great. Thanks so much, Dean. Thank you, Jasmine. Thank you, Valentina. And thank you, Hakeem, for getting us up to date on what's going on in the arts community during this once-in-a-lifetime pandemic. A very special thanks to Joan Safadi for letting us use his track, Super White Man. You can find out more about his music on Bandcamp, YouTube, and everywhere you listen to music. I'm Hrag Vartanyan, the co-founder and editor-in-chief of Hyperallergic. Thanks for listening, and stay safe. Maybe the difference was that they were all white And claimed to have a God-given right To take my home and call it their own Super white man, salam alaikum. How does it feel to solve your problems and create one for me? And when will I be free? They told me everything about the Holocaust, but no one told me why I should pay the cost. They planned wars and told me that I lost And all the losers were forced to flee You see, oh super white man Salam alaikum How does it feel To solve your problems and create one for me And when will I be free? Oh no white people, no need to be afraid We're just escaping the mess that you made We'll never play as dirty as you played We love our countries if you just let us be Super white man What about the black man What about the brown man What about the red man What about the yellow man What about the woman What about me Oh super white man Salam alaikum How does it feel To solve your problems And create one for me And when will I be free?